0: guys and a warm welcome to the latest episode of the true crime enthusiast podcast a show that looks at and recounts the lesser known and usually more obscure crimes from the shores of the UK as ever I'm your host Paul the true crime enthusiast of the show's title and as always I thank you guys for joining me I hope you're all good and enjoying the glorious sunshine that we've got here unbelievable isn't it I can't remember a time when each day was like the start of The Simpsons so much here and it's absolutely brilliant, I love it. Proper beer garden weather too, isn't it, indeed. I must begin by apologising for the false information last week when I said I was taking a week's break this one. It's worked out that I can make an episode this week after all, so here I am. I do still have a busy month though, so it'll be next week that I have my free week. And then I'll be back with you with a case that I've looked forward to bringing to the show for a while. Thanks very much for all of the new follows, shares and reviews for the show, by the way, along with my new and updating Patreon supporters. That's Melanie Gudgel, Carl Phillips, Stephanie Drabble, Erin Cassidy, Susie Brace, Sue Mering Moreau, Catherine, Jeremy Hinkle Running, and Lara Ingborstetir. I hope that I've said that right, because I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Thanks so much for your support guys. It means the world and I hope that you enjoy the bonus Patreon episodes that are always released on the first of each month and that there are now six of. The latest was added just a few days ago. If anyone else would be interested in supporting the show for less than the cost of a pint a month, it's got to be worth it, hasn't it? Then the link will as ever be in the social media links in the episode show notes for this week. I like to remind as well that I'm always willing and eager to hear suggestions for cases to cover on the show. And for any of you out there who fancy writing a guest piece for the show, I'm all ears. I have heard from a couple of people who've expressed interest in writing up a case, and I'm all for it. So some interesting cases are now being researched and written up for another listener episode towards the end of the series. Promo time as normal now and this week the promo I've got to share with you is Southern Gone which is a podcast hosted by former private investigator Christy Bryant. That must be really cool to say I'm a former PI like Magnum or something like that. Southern Gone deals with the cases of missing persons in the southern United States. It tells the story about who the victim is, the circumstances of the disappearances and theories of the families or law enforcement that the theories that they may have about it, Christie's also known to give her own opinion as well. Now, I think missing people is a great and worthy subject to deal with and bring awareness to, and it's sadly one that there must be plenty of cases to pick from Southern Gone's available on the usual podcast platforms with a link to the show in my show notes as ever So with that, it's over to Christy. Hello, everyone. My name is Christy Bryant, and I'm the host and creator of Southern Gone. We are a podcast dedicated to raising awareness of missing unsolved person cases in the southern United States. Join me as I investigate the cases by interviewing law enforcement who are actively investigating the cases, family members of the missing, and reporters who have reported extensively on these cases. We try to help find some answers to some very bizarre and at times mind-baffling cases. We are a bi-weekly podcast with a new episode available every other Monday. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. I invite you to listen because you may hold the missing piece to a baffling puzzle. So grab a chair, a glass of sweet tea, and get gone with Southern Gone. sudden gone how's about that then? eh what do you reckon sound good or what well worth checking out trust me so for this week's episode of the true crime enthusiast podcast it's another case of me chopping and changing the order of cases from the ever-changing fridge chalkboard that i have the cases this week are two that i had long planned on covering at some point in the show so why not that point be right now they come from the 1970s and 1980s and each individually deals with a series of sex crimes committed by an offender that if they hadn't been stopped when they were, they would without question have both become killers. If these are cases that you're unfamiliar with, then I guarantee by the end of the episode, I'm quite confident each one is a case that you'll never forget. This week's episode deals with some sex crimes and contains descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting. I've not tried to sensationalise any of the aspects of the crimes that you'll hear within. I've tried to remain sensitive to those involved, and as such, anonymity has been used within. I may now and again have let my own opinions slip into the narrative, but I do that each episode, don't I? And I've never made any secret of how much I despise sex offenders, particularly those who rape, because it's an abhorrent crime. But please be extra advised that these are disturbing and frightening cases, guys, so discretion is advised. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back this week at the case of first, the Notting Hill Rapist. In the 1980s, the West London district of Notting Hill was just beginning its transformation from a rundown area to the fashionable affluent area that it's now known as immortalised in the very successful 1999 film of the same name. Now, I thought this film was quite shit, to be honest, because I can't be doing with Hugh Grant in the slightest. He plays the same bell end in every film that he's in, doesn't he? Got no time for him whatsoever. The area has been forever associated with art and alternative cultures since it was first established in the 1820s. Plus, its carnival is obviously quite world-renowned as well. But beginning in 1982, Notting Hill found itself having the unsavoury distinction of being the hunting ground of a vicious and prolific sex attacker. The man who came to be known as the Notting Hill Rapist first struck late at night on the 12th of August 1982 when a female solicitor who'd been out with friends for the evening arrived home to the house that she lived alone in, in Notting Hill's Clarendon Road. She let herself in through the front door and turned on the light in the hallway, but it didn't work. Before she could do anything, from out of the darkness she was grabbed by the throat from behind, and was warned by a man's rough-sounding voice not to scream. The woman was dragged further down the hallway, and her attacker began to indecently assault her. Terrified, but with the fight-or-flight instance kicking in, she kicked the man as hard as she could in the groin, and in pain, The rapist swore at her and then fled from the premises through the front door. The shaken and frightened woman then contacted police. Detectives investigating the incident believed that the most likely scenario was that the woman had arrived home and had interrupted a burglar, a theory that was given credence due to the fact that Clarendon Road is one of the wealthiest streets in the district and as such was a frequent target for burglars. But nothing had been found to have been stolen from the flat. And would a burglar really commit an opportunistic sexual assault instead of just fleeing if they were disturbed? It had been too dark for the woman to be able to give any sort of description of her assailant and routine inquiries were made, but the trail went nowhere. Then in November that year, a second disturbing incident made police consider the fact that the incident in August wasn't just a burglary gone wrong, it was the genesis of a serial attacker. On Wednesday the 10th of November a 45 year old woman who lived alone was getting ready for bed in her home in Elgin Crescent which is just a hundred yards away from the scene of the attack in August and it's another upmarket area. As she was locking up her back door a masked intruder jumped at her from the darkness of her kitchen. Restraining the terrified woman at knife point the intruder marched her through the house and pushed her onto her bed. He then gagged her and attempted to rape her, but inexplicably stopped his attempt after a brief struggle, and fled instead, as though he'd simply changed his mind. Again, the frightened woman wasn't able to give any sort of description, apart from that he was a stocky male, very strong, and who wore a black mask that she thought was a balaclava. A month later, on the 13th of December, yet another incident forced police to now conclude that they had a serial sex attacker at large one operating within a very small area. A television researcher who lived just a few doors away from the second woman attacked in Elgin Crescent was asleep in bed after having had an early night due to illness. It was about midnight when she was awoken by a masked man who was on her bed and at knife point was attempting to rape her. After committing a serious indecent assault upon the woman, the masked attacker fled. Again, no description was available, but in this instance, the intruder had taken money from the flat, and bizarrely, two knives had also been stolen. One of them was a very unique letter opener in the form of a mini samurai sword. Two days later, these knives were found in a bizarre incident. The attacker had returned to the scene of the first attack, to the first woman in Clarendon Road. She'd returned home to find that her attacker had been back to her flat, had ransacked it, and performed a bizarre ritual with an oversized teddy bear that the woman had in her bedroom. The stuffed animal, which was called Toby, by the way, had been bound and gagged with strips torn from one of the woman's bedsheets and left in a prominent position on her bed. Two knives had been placed upon her pillow. One of these was the letter opener that had been taken in the attack two days before. So that was enough for the frightened woman. She moved house. I mean, you can't really blame her, can you? I mean, it's horrific enough to be indecently assaulted in your own home. But when the intruder comes back and does something that's all the more frightening because it's so weird, well, you would move, wouldn't you? An undercover team was formed to try to catch the attacker, but police didn't have very much to go on. They believed he was local to the area and knew it very well and he was at the least an experienced burglar, due to the expertise that he'd shown in managing to enter the women's homes silently and efficiently. What they did not know was why this burglar had now become a serial sex offender also. Whilst the check on known burglars local to the Notting Hill area began, undercover teams staked out different points of the area at night time, and an increased visual police presence hit the streets. Despite these efforts, the attacker struck again just two weeks later. In what was to be the most vicious attack so far, a Middle Eastern woman was attacked in her flat in nearby Ladbrook Grove. Like the first woman, she was ambushed as she came home late at night by the attacker who lay in wait for her. She was viciously beaten and had a sharp knife forced into her mouth when she struggled, with her attacker threatened to mutilate and kill her constantly throughout the assault. The woman was stripped, gagged and bound with bath towels and then had an obscene sex act performed upon her. Then the attacker fled. This was to be the last attack for three months. The attacks up to then had been prominent and regular and with a gap of so long, detectives hunting the attacker considered the reasons why he may have gone to ground. Perhaps he'd been imprisoned for another crime, perhaps he'd moved away from the area or was working away perhaps he'd even died or he'd not gone anywhere and was simply biding his time. Police fears that the attacker had actually not gone away were realised when on the 22nd of April 1983 the attacker returned with a vengeance. In chilling echoes of the first and fourth attacks a 22 year old woman was ambushed in a flat on Lansdowne Road when she returned from a night out. This time the attacker took his horrific pastime further and committed a full rape for the first time. Press who had been following the attacks christened the attacker the Notting Hill Rapist and the local newspapers had a field day with scary and sensational headlines. Women in the area now lived in mortal fear and security firms did a thriving trade in secure door locks and burglar alarms. But after the fifth attack, the attacks again stopped. But the search for the rapist continued and detectives looked at what they knew about the man they were hunting. He was stocky and strong and as he spoke regularly to the women that he'd attacked, all agreed that he sounded to be a native Londoner. He usually wore a dark tracksuit or clothing and training shoes and was always masked in a balaclava. He wasn't afraid to use violence and was very sexually perverted. The attacks were horrific and too obscene for exact details to have ever been released. Although the man they were hunting was almost certainly an experienced local burglar, he was not, however, forensically aware. He'd never used a condom in any of his attacks, and he'd left forensic traces at the scene. Semen samples had been taken from the women that he'd attacked, and although DNA testing was on the near horizon, it just wasn't quite available at that time. But a broad comparison of matching blood groups could be made, and as suspects and local burglars were questioned and interviewed for elimination, those who fitted the general description of what detectives had to go on were asked to give blood samples. This allowed those who didn't match the rapist's blood group, which was identified as Group Zero, to be eliminated from the inquiry. More and more months passed with no attacks, and by January 1984, the inquiry was wound down. It was possible, of course, that the rapist had died or had moved, but detectives believed that the most likely reason for the cessation in attacks was that the rapist had been imprisoned for another crime. They believed that only if he'd been taken off the streets would this man have stopped attacking. There were no further attacks for more than three years. Then in May 1987, the Notting Hill rapist returned. Now if the attacks in 1982 and 1983 were distant in the memories of Notting Hill residents, then they were reminded in the most horrific fashion on the 4th of May 1987. Like the modus operandi and the attacks from years before, a solicitor was attacked by a man clad in dark clothing and a balaclava as she returned home to a Lansdowne Road flat late at night, where the last attack had taken place years before in April 1983. The woman tried to halt the attack by saying that she had the AIDS virus. But chillingly, her attacker said, I have too. I'll take the chance. How evil and horrific is that? That is the stuff of nightmares, isn't it? Holding her at knife point, the rapist stripped the woman, tied and gagged her, then brutally raped her at knife point. As with the other attacks, there wasn't much of a description to go on. Stocky, strong, violent, London accent, masked in a balaclava. Again, nothing appeared to have been taken from the flat, but police did want find one vital clue that they could add to the profile of the rapist. They managed to glean an imprint of a size 9 training shoe from a work surface in the flat underneath a kitchen window where the rapist had entered the flat through. The Notting Hill rapist next struck on the 28th of July 1987 in his favoured hunting ground of Elgin Crescent. A 34-year-old woman had that evening just ended her relationship with her boyfriend and after they'd had a heated row at her house, she'd asked him to leave. Just mere minutes after he'd left, the mass rapist burst into her home and savagely attacked her. He threatened her with a knife in his now trademark pattern and then tied her up with scarves and a leather belt. During the attack and between threats of violence, the rapist asked her if the reason she'd finished with her boyfriend was because he wasn't very good at sex. He'd been listening at a rear window the whole time and had heard everything. By this time, Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Hutchinson was in charge of the hunt for the Notting Hill rapist and decided to adopt the strategy of again posting plainclothes officers at strategic positions in gardens and parks around the Elgin Crescent-Lansdowne road areas every night. It was believed that the rapist was this local burglar and prowler who was when he was not attacking women would spend his nights prowling about and spying on them instead. The fact that he'd always attacked women who lived alone suggested that he spent time stalking and watching them and it was hoped that a plainclothes unit would be in the right place at the right time and be able to catch their man doing it. This strategy almost worked twice. Perhaps the increased police presence on the streets had scared the rapist off as there'd been another lull in attacks. But in December 1987, a resident of flats near Lansdowne Road saw a man crouching in the shrubbery at the rear of the block. The alarm was raised and a nearby plainclothes policeman rushed into the communal gardens and caught the prowler making a run for it. As the man scaled a wall, the pursuing officer managed to grab hold of his leg but the man managed to break free and got away running through gardens and across a children's play area. Two months later, on the 16th of February 1988, the same man was again disturbed at midnight in gardens at the rear of Ladbrook Crescent, but again managed to avoid the police blanket and escape. Frustratingly, each time the man had been just that much of head of police that they were unable to get a clear description of him, apart from that he was physically fit and stocky. In dark clothing and was Caucasian. Now, many high-profile hunts have been resolved not through brilliant detective work, but through the shrewd hunches or opportunism of beat constables. A notable example is, of course, the capture of Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, or the arrest of John Reginald Halliday Christie when he was being sought over the discovery of bodies at Ten Rillington Place. The Notting Hill rapist was to be brought to justice due to a hunch and determination of a beat officer, PC Graham Hamilton. PC Hamilton's beat area had for many years been the Notting Hill areas where the rapist struck, and he knew most of the local criminal fraternity well through previous dealings that he'd had with them. He had a hunch that the rapist detectives were searching for was a thirty seven year old petty housebreaker and violent thug named Tony McLean, who lived in a flat on the Clarendon estate. Now the Clarendon estate was just a few hundred yards from the scenes of all of the sex attacks and McLean matched the general description given by those attacked. He was strong, stocky and a fitness fanatic keen on bodybuilding and weight training and he was prone to violence. He had several convictions for it and also his timeline seemed to fit around the sex attacks. When the attacks had ceased in 1983 this corresponded exactly with a prison sentence of four years that McLean had started at the time for a brutal attack on a youth with a baseball bat. He'd been freed in 1987, the same year that the attacks began again. Further checks revealed that McLean had been interviewed as a matter of routine by detectives investigating the attacks in 1983, and had voluntarily provided a blood sample. PC Hamilton decided to voice his suspicions to Detective Chief Superintendent Hutchinson, so it was known that the rapist's blood was in the 0 secreta category, and it was here that the theory of McLean as a suspect initially fell down. When his blood group was checked, the computer screen showed that he was an O-secretor, an entirely different blood group from that of the Notting Hill rapist. Furthermore, home office files showed McLean as being released from prison in June 1987, making it impossible for him to have attacked a woman in May of that year. McLean was seemingly in the clear, but this just didn't sit quite right with P.C. Hamilton. He felt sure of his suspicions, and he wouldn't let the matter drop. Deciding to take McLean in for further questioning, P.C. Hamilton called at his flat, but McLean wasn't home, so the officer left him a note asking him to attend Notting Hill Police Station. Although he was under no obligation to, McLean did attend the police station a few days later, in February 1988. During the interview, McLean answered everything put to him in a cocky manner and denied everything and any knowledge whatsoever of the attacks, even going so far as to show PC Hamilton his penis to prove that he couldn't be a rapist. McLean's penis was badly scarred from a childhood accident that he'd had after he fell onto broken glass, and as he showed it to PC Hamilton, he exclaimed, This is why I ain't no rapist. Despite this, and despite what the computer said, PC Hamilton was more convinced than ever that the man sat across from him was the Notting Hill Rapist. At the cessation of the interview, and before leaving the station, McLean provided yet another blood sample. It was a few days later that PC Hamilton got confirmation that his suspicions weren't unfounded. Forensic examiners contacted him, and informed him that the sample McLean had provided showed that he was a 0 secreta, which matched the rapist. PC Hamilton telephoned and asked them to double-check to confirm, which they did, and it was found again. McLean was indeed a 0 secreta. What had happened was as follows. The home office computer operator, when entering details of McLean's blood group onto the computer, had mistakenly typed the letter O instead of a zero. A simple typing error had had massive consequences. So a check with the Home Office to confirm McLean's prison release dates revealed yet another clerical error. McLean had actually been released in January 1987, but a typist had typed J-U-N instead of J-A-N. So bolstered by this, Tony McLean was arrested at his home on the 1st of March 1988. And I hope that the Home Office staff got a right good kick up the arse for that too. McLean appeared at the Old Bailey, more than a year later in April 1989, charged with a string of offences totaling three rapes, two attempted rapes, burglary with intent to rape and robbery. He pleaded not guilty to all counts, meaning that the women who'd been attacked would be forced to undergo cross-examination. The jury heard emotional and sickening accounts from several of these women, and their powerful testimonies left a marked impression on the jury. But it was the miracles of forensic science that provided the most powerful evidence. By 1989, DNA testing was widely accepted as conclusive evidence by British courts, and Professor Alec Jeffreys himself, known as the man who pioneered and perfected the art of DNA profiling with his discovery in 1984, Testified at McLean's trial. Professor Jeffries testified that McLean's blood sample showed an identical match with semen taken from the women who'd been attacked and that the chances of the semen belonging to anyone but McLean were in the region of three million to one. McLean was found guilty by the jury on all counts and remained impassive and emotionless in the dock when he was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences. A further twelve years for attempted rape, indecent assaults, and burglary. City of London recorder Sir James Miskin, QC, told him, You are a total menace to women, and these rapes were absolutely foul. Following McLean's conviction, the two women who had been attacked and who had testified in court hugged each other in tears. Detective Chief Superintendent Hutchinson, who led the hunt for him, said on the steps of the Old Bailey, I'm absolutely delighted that this sex maniac has been taken off the streets. While casing places to burgle, he saw the girls and realised how easy it would be for him to rape them. When we kept watch, we found girls undressing in front of their windows. McLean would have seen the same thing and he was tempted. The full MO of McLean's crimes was established at his trial. A fitness fanatic, He'd go out jogging and run the half mile from his flat to his hunting grounds. At first casing basement and ground floor properties to burgle, but then turn into rape. He'd sometimes watch a property for days at a time and see women undressing. When he'd learned his intended target's routine, he'd then return days later and break in just before the woman was due home. He'd unscrew the hall light and wait in the darkness for her. Gloved, masked and always armed with a knife and strips of cloth to gag and restrain the woman, McLean would then rape or indecently assault him, and then flee into the local area that he knew intimately. With his local knowledge of the local footpaths and back alleys, he'd be gone in a flash. Psychologists claim that McLean's desire to rape stemmed from feelings that he had of sexual inadequacy, even though he was a married father of two children. It transpired that McLean had found sexual relationships with women difficult throughout his life due to the damage to his penis caused in his childhood accident. So in an attempt to prove his masculinity more to himself than anyone, McLean took up bodybuilding and weight training, which is a common trait among sex killers and rapists, as though they have something to prove. McLean had targeted professional wealthy women because in his view... They were out of his league and represented a lifestyle that he could never hope to be part of, and hatred and jealousy over this drove him to attack and rape. His attacks were brutal and escalated in this brutality, and whilst the physical harm varied, the psychological cruelty and terror that he inflicted in the attacks was always paramount. Police were in no doubt that McLean would have gravitated to murder if he hadn't been stopped when he was. After McLean's conviction, Detective Chief Superintendent James Hutchinson said, McLean was a twisted pervert who enjoyed terrorising and humiliating young women. He picked on well-to-do professional types because they made him feel inferior. He's a very dangerous man, and I'm sure that if we'd not caught him when we did, he would have moved on to murder in a very short space of time. Much praise was heaped upon PC Hamilton for his pursuit of McLean and the hunch that he wouldn't give up on. If it wasn't for this, and even more so for following this said hunch in the face of what seemed to be conflicting evidence, then a dangerous rapist may have been stalking the streets for a lot longer and he may have even become a dangerous killer. And undoubtedly McLean would have become a killer as well. He was a violent thug before his rape spree and as his crimes got bolder and more savage as he went on, then I don't think a trivial matter to him such as murder would have stopped him. Do you really think that? It's quite scary to think that a typing error, if it hadn't been questioned and checked, may have let this continue to happen. Now whilst the Notting Hill rapists' crimes are terrifying and horrific, they are sadly not unique. There are others, of course. Eight years before Tony McLean first struck and 60 miles away, a monstrous individual terrorised a historic city with his crimes and depraved acts. Like McLean, he would have undoubtedly become a killer if he hadn't been stopped when he was, and the level of fear that he instilled in the area he operated in at least paralleled, if not surpassed, that of McLean. To myself, he's one of the most infamous and horrendous criminals this country has ever known, and his tale is as follows. The city of Cambridge is the county town of the English county of Cambridgeshire, located on the picturesque River Cam. Apart from being the county town, there are other claims to fame that Cambridge has under its belt. For example, the first Associating Rules football was hosted in Cambridge on a green known as Parker's Peace. Bit of stat that ties in nicely with the World Cup that I'm sure many of you are currently enjoying. Or complaining about if your teams are out, or like me... All of your bets are now already defunct because some teams may not have even bothered turning up and get themselves knocked out before qualifying. Mentioning no names of course, Germany, Argentina, Portugal, Spain. Do you see a pattern here? Kate Middleton is of course the Duchess of Cambridge now, after marrying Wills a few years back and the original manuscript of A.A. Milne's classic creation, Winnie the Pooh, is kept in the Wren Library as part of Cambridge University in Trinity College. But above all that, it's the world-famous historical university that Cambridge is predominantly famous for. It's the second oldest university in the English-speaking world, behind Oxford, and it boasts 86 Nobel Prize winners spanning all six disciplines, having studied there, Because of the university, a large percentage of the occupants of Cambridge are continuously made up of students and have been for many, many years, with student accommodation, house shares and bedsits commonplace throughout the city. But from mid-October 1974, Cambridge was a city that was held in the grip of fear. There was a vicious sex attacker at large, attacking the lone female students of the city. The crimes got more and more violent and horrifying as the man, dubbed by police and the media as the Cambridge Rapist, managed to continually avoid capture despite a massive manhunt for him. Like the one from McLean, the rapist was finally caught not by detective work, but by pure chance. The Rapist's reign of terror began on the 18th of October 1974. It was a Friday evening and a young student was alone in the house that she shared on the city's Springfield Road with four other students. This was and still is common practice in university towns for students to house share and the other girls who lived in the house were all out or away for the weekend. At about 9.30pm the young woman had just got out of the bath and had put on some music and begun to get dried but just as she'd begun to do so the lights in the house went out and the music stopped. The terrified young woman pulled on her dressing gown then heard the sound of footsteps on the floorboards outside her room and the sound of a key being inserted in the lock. Suddenly, a short, stocky man, wearing black and with the lower half of his face masked with a scarf, burst through the door and roughly pushed her onto the floor. He tied her wrists together with a blouse from the young woman's own wardrobe, and then placed a pillowcase over her head. The man then said to her chillingly, I've got a sharp knife, one silly move, and there'll be a lot of blood. Realising that she was naked underneath her robe he then asked her if she was alone and when the terrified woman said that she was the man said I came to rob you but I think I'll rape you instead. She was then savagely raped by the intruder who made perverse and coarse marks about her body as he did so. After robbing her of 12 pounds from her purse the rapist fled so the shocked woman got dressed got into her car and drove to a friend's house across the city. It was only then that police were notified, as the telephone line at the Springfield Road house had been cut by the intruder. The woman could only give police a vague description of the man, short, about 5 feet 4 inches tall, and stocky. Even the relatively short stature of the assailant didn't give police much of a lead. In that part of the country, Newmarket is very near to Cambridge and Newmarket is considered to be the global centre of thoroughbred horse racing so there are plenty of jockeys around the area who would match the size. A squad organised by Cambridge CID chief Charles Nan got to work interviewing all men around this height in the area which, pardon the pun, was a tall order because there were so many. Less than two miles away from the scene of the first rape and exactly two weeks later, in nearby Abbey Road, the rapist struck again in an almost carbon copy attack. Another young woman was laying in the bath, alone at home, when the light suddenly went out. As she got out of the bath and went to the top of the stairs to call out to see if anybody was there, she heard someone running up the stairs in the darkness and was overpowered by a short, stocky man, again with his lower face masked. He forced an ether-soaked cloth pad over her face and pushed her into the bedroom, telling her, Shut up, or I will kill you. Tying her hands behind her back with a pair of tights and gagging her with a handkerchief, she was then brutally raped by the intruder. When she cried out that the man was hurting her, the rapist replied, That's good, that's good. He seemed to enjoy inflicting pain, and when he was finished he then fled, leaving the weeping woman bruised and shaken. She ran hysterically to a neighbour who contacted police and the description given again was vague but it matched that of the previous attack. So taking this with a proximity to the first attack police investigating that one now realised they were looking for a serial rapist who could strike again at any time. A bizarre incident then occurred a few days later on the 11th of November 1974 in a house on huntington road which is a distance of about eight miles from the previous two attacks another young woman was alone she was ironing in a shared house when she heard what sounded like somebody climbing over the back garden fence there was nobody there when she looked out so she thought nothing more of it about 30 minutes later the front doorbell rang and when she went to answer it she was confronted with a strange sight she was later to tell police When I opened it, there was a man on the doorstep. He was wearing a light brown shoulder-length wig and a grey knitted scarf around the bottom half of his face. He also had on a black leather jacket and black leather gloves. Apart from that, he was naked. The man lunged at the woman through the door, but this time he was fought off. After being kicked in the groin and hit with the iron the woman had been using, the man fled in pain. It was clear that this woman was the intended third target. A few days later the next woman attacked was an Australian girl on a working holiday who rented a bedsit nearby to the first two attacks and one evening she heard a noise in the shared kitchen of the block and went to investigate as the block was otherwise empty. She was confronted in the kitchen by a hooded bearded man with shoulder length hair dressed the same as the man from Huntingdon Road who was carrying a knife attached to a lanyard. Despite a spirited fight She was overpowered and raped, but the rapist dropped his wig in the hall whilst fleeing. The woman was so hysterical that she didn't want to be near any part of her attacker whatsoever and threw the wig out onto the street before contacting police. Despite the area being cordoned off and a mass search for the wig, it was not found. The rapist had returned to the area and retrieved it. Just two days later the rapist struck again more viciously and terrifying than before and he'd now become more brazen because he attacked in one of the university campus buildings this time. A young music student was practising a cello in one of the soundproofed music rooms of Homerton Ladies College in Cambridge when the now familiar signature of the power being cut occurred. In the frightening silent blackness the young woman was grabbed from behind and a pad soaked in ether was placed across her nose and mouth. The frightened girl struggled and screamed, and in response was told that she was going to be murdered. Placing a sack over her head, which muffled her cries, she was dragged out of the block of music rooms, and across a field to a nearby shed, where she was repeatedly raped. During her ordeal, she heard the rapist say the following, I am not a murderer, I am the Cambridge Rapist. Throughout the ordeal, the rapist talked to the girl incessantly about music, bizarrely even telling her that he would buy her an organ to practice upon. What goes through the minds of these people? Bizarre. The girl could offer police no description apart from the now familiar height. The rapist had moved on from walking around semi-naked and he now wore black leathers and a terrifying black leather zipped hood that he would unzip to speak to her. And how tragic is this? How unbelievable is this, right? This girl, the music student, happened to be the sister of the first woman attacked by the man who had now been christened by press and police as the Cambridge Rapist. Isn't that absolutely shocking? Unbelievable. Three and a half weeks later, the rapist struck yet again. On the 8th of December 1974, a 21-year-old student was asleep in bed in her house on Owlstone Road when she was woken by a bright light being shined in her eyes. She was gagged with her own tights, dragged roughly from her bed at knife point and taken downstairs and outside, where she was pushed onto the lawn and tied up with a pair of tights taken from the washing line. She was then savagely raped. But this attack yielded two important bits of information that would prove to be ultimately accurate about the rapist. During the rape, the rapist had used the victim's boyfriend's name, asking if he did this to her. Was he researching his victims, or did he actually know her or her boyfriend? The student also said that her attacker had said to her, The police will never catch me, I've got a car and I'll be in London before they can do anything. Yet when the rapist had fled, there was no sound of a car being driven away, but she had heard what sounded like a bicycle being ridden away. One week later, the rapist committed rape for the fifth time, and returned to the scene of his third attack, the house in Huntington Road. A 21-year-old woman in an upstairs flat was awoken in the now signature method. An ether-soaked pad was placed over her nose and mouth, and a torch shone in her eyes. More savagely this time, after being tied up and raped, the woman had her body slashed by the attacker with his sharp knife. The gaping wound required 20 stitches. Police, already working flat out to fever pitch, now had to catch this man before instead of just destroying lives, he actually took one too. It was only a matter of time. By this time, the hunt for the rapist had become one of the biggest in British criminal history. Hundreds of officers were involved in looking for a man that they knew very little about, and only had a vague description of. About five feet tall, young, stocky, possibly bearded, possibly long-haired. An identical picture of the rapist's supposed description was placed on posters and distributed all over Cambridge. They knew that the rapist talked to his victims during the assaults, and that his voice sounded local so they knew they were probably looking for a local man, possibly an experienced burglar. He could disguise himself and could move freely even though at night more than a hundred plainclothes detectives roamed Cambridge streets looking for anyone who was acting furtively. The police had forensic evidence from the rapist, semen swabbed from his victims that revealed his blood group as an O-secretor. It also revealed that the man they were looking for was sterile, Police invited all men over five feet in height from Cambridge and nearby Newmarket to come and give saliva samples to eliminate themselves, and 1,644 of them did, but the rapist was not found. Someone must have known who he was, and the officer in charge of the investigation, Detective Chief Superintendent Bernard Hodson, said in a statement to the press, We are certain that someone in the city knows of this man's different disguises and his peculiar moods in the early hours of the morning. His sadistic tendencies must have shown themselves before he started raping innocent girls. And the scope of potential victims was massive. Cambridge was a massively populated university town with thousands of female students living alone in halls of residence, bedsits and shared houses. Any of them could be the rapist's next victim. Student protection groups were formed, escorting lone females, with male volunteers even staying in rooms with them overnight. And police actively encouraged female students living alone to arrange for their boyfriends to come and stay with them. Perhaps the hunt had gotten too close, because suddenly the attacks stopped. During the next couple of months graffiti began to appear on walls near to the scene of the attacks. Chillingly it said the rapist is back and there were a few reports from women who discovered frightening messages written on their windows in pink lipstick saying sleep tight the rapist. Now it was never proved whether this was the work of the actual offender or just sick malicious individuals who get a kick out of doing things just like this but there were no more reports of actual attacks. But on the 13th of April 1975, the Cambridge rapist returned with a vengeance. Late that night, a young woman alone in a house in a street close to the scene of the previous attacks, Merton Street, heard a key being tried in her door lock. Now because of the attacks the previous year, the woman had had a security chain fitted to the door, and this held, but the power to her house had been cut there was no telephone to call for help. The petrified woman got into bed, too scared to do anything else, and about 20 minutes later, noticed a torch beam appear at her bedroom window. Suddenly, she heard the terrifying sound of the front door crashing open as the attacker threw himself at it, breaking the chain. She heard the sound of someone running upstairs, and in the dark she was restrained as per what was now the chilling signature. But this time, if you can believe this, there was added terror and evil. When the woman's eyes adjusted to the half-light in the room, she saw what must have been an unbelievably terrifying sight. Before her stood a man dressed completely in black leather. As usual, he wore a hideous terrifying leather mask with a zip across the mouth and two eye slits. But to add to the horror of it, now across the forehead was painted in white letters the word rapist. From underneath the mask, the woman could make out a straggly beard, and before she was horrifically attacked, the attacker slowly pulled back the mouthsit and said to the woman, do you know who I am? I am the Cambridge Rapist. Now I hate masks as it is. I don't fear them as such but I've always found them quite sinister so I can't even begin to imagine just how terrifying that must have been for her. And the mask is really horrific. I'll add pictures of it to Instagram and Facebook following the episode just so you can see for yourselves how chilling it is. The police now obviously feared more than ever that the rapist would go on to kill someone. He changed tactics and become more bolder and more violent. All the police could do was intensify the hunt, which meant more patrols, more inquiries, more interviews and investigations. But the rapists still remained at large. The 6th of May 1975 brought another attack, and this time in broad daylight. A young female student on her lunch break had returned home to collect some notes when she was attacked in her own home. Whilst inside, she heard a strange noise behind the door, and upon opening it, she was confronted by the mass rapist. He threatened her with a knife, and actually stabbed her in the stomach, then forced himself upon her, and raped her while she bled. As he'd done in previous attacks, the rapist displayed some knowledge of the woman, using her boyfriend's name during the assault, and telling her that her boyfriend did that to her. He then left the traumatised woman bleeding all over her living room floor, and fled. She was lucky to be left alive and thankfully did recover from her physical injuries, but psychologically, where would you even begin? The Cambridge rapist's reign of terror came to an end in the early hours of Sunday the 8th of June 1975. A 28-year-old Canadian exchange student asleep in bed in Alstone Croft Hostel was awakened in the early hours by footsteps in the corridor outside her room and a scratching at her door. When she opened the door to see who was there. The rapist lunged at her, but her loud screams disturbed him, and he fled from the building. Two anglers who were night fishing nearby on the river Cam heard the woman's screams, and ran towards the hostel, with one of them contacting police. An urgent radio message contacted every undercover unit who were still patrolling the street searching for the rapist, telling them to stop everything or anything that moved. This was their best chance of catching the man who brought fear to Cambridge. In nearby Selwyn Road, Detective Constable Terry Edwards had just received the radio message at 2.35am when he heard the sound of a bicycle coming towards him. He looked up and saw a woman with long brown hair pedalling swiftly towards him. The bike was an ancient ladies model with a front basket and was being ridden in an erratic manner. It had several plastic carrier bags slung from the handlebars and was being ridden with no lights even though it was pitch black. D.C. Edwards challenged the cyclist to stop but the cyclist swerved around him and carried on pedalling. As D.C. Edwards made a grab for the woman's hair it came off in his hand and the cyclist crashed to the ground unbalanced by the lunge. Accompanied by local residents who had come out to see what all the fuss was about D.C. Edwards ran over to where the figure lay. The prone figure on the floor wore a red coat and a pleated skirt and underneath these revealed a short stocky man with close cropped hair. He was restrained and arrested and along with the items in the carrier bags and the wig was taken to the nearest police station and locked in a cell. It was only when police searched the carrier bags that they realised they'd just caught the Cambridge rapist. In one of the bags, police found a jemmy, a torch, a knife, a homemade device for fusing lights, assorted housebreaking equipment, a bottle of ether and a cloth pad. The other bags revealed a black leather jacket and trousers, women's lipstick, and the hideous rapist mask. His reign of terror was now over. The Cambridge rapist was revealed to be 47-year-old delivery driver and part-time handyman Peter Samuel Cook. Cook had a long history of being in trouble with the police and had a large number of convictions, usually though for theft or burglary, with no history whatsoever of sexual offending. At age just 10 years old, he'd been described by authorities as being out of control and in 1952 had been jailed for five years for housebreaking he escaped from his cell and began a repeating pattern of arrest, conviction, incarceration and absconding and whilst on the loose he would taunt police with telephone calls other times using the moniker The Shadow which he would write on mirrors in lipstick at the scene of his burglaries. He even once wrote a letter to the Cambridge News while he was at large boasting that he'd been back in Cambridge while police were searching for him and bragging, I'm not worried now police, people, courts, nothing worries me now. Eventually in 1966, he was declared insane and sent to Broadmoor Secure Hospital in Berkshire, only to be released 17 months later when authorities decided he'd simply feigned mental illness in order to escape a long prison sentence. Now I can't really imagine a secure hospital being a better option myself, but there you go. However, after his release, Cook had married in 1968, and since then he'd seemingly kept his nose clean, working as a driver, and odd job come handyman. He and his wife lived in a static caravan in the village of Hardwick, which is about five miles from the heart of the rapist's hunting ground of Cambridge. Cook had actually been questioned early on in the hunt for the rapist about one of the attacks, as he had a criminal record and was of similar height to the rapist's description. He managed to provide a convincing alibi for the time of the attack, claiming that he was at a boatyard where he was employed at the time, and this could be vouched for by a number of people there. These people were spoken to and they did confirm this, saying Cook was there at the time of the attack. Cook had refused to give a saliva sample when asked, saying, That's an infringement of my civil liberties. Anyway, you can see I look nothing like the photo-fit picture, and he's supposed to be half my age. I don't know what's wrong with your justice system, you should either arrest me or clear off. With a supported alibi and no history of sexual offences, police had nothing to arrest Cook for. But a search of his mobile home did notice that he had a large quantity of hardcore pornography in his home. But just because you love a jazz mag or two doesn't make everybody a masked serial rapist, does it? But it was enough to put him under police surveillance and this was around the exact time that the rapes had stopped for four months. After his arrest, Cook quickly admitted being the Cambridge rapist in light of all of the wealth of evidence against him. He gave a statement where he freely admitted everything, and volunteered to take police around the city, showing them where he had attacked and raped women to back up his story. He gave no explanation to detectives as to why he had gravitated to being a sex offender, saying only, I came to rob." but decided to rape instead. He told detectives that he had engineered being at the boatyard the day of the rape he was questioned about, and had slipped away and raped the girl, then returned, confident that the other workers there would vouch for him unwittingly. He was right to be confident, and aside from this, detectives learned in other ways just how cunning Cook was, and why he was so difficult to capture. The hooded rapist mask had false hair glued to the inside of it, to give the impression that the rapist was long-haired and bearded, whereas Cook was in fact clean-shaven and had a short, crew-cut hairstyle. He'd travel to and from the scene of the attacks disguised as a woman, then dress into his chilling rapist attire once near the scene, commit his horrific crimes, then change back to his disguise and flee on a pushbike. Detectives surmised that he'd passed them on a number of occasions, unnoticed because he was dismissed as a female cyclist in a city where bicycles outnumbered cars, three to one at that time. A search of Cook's static caravan and his father's nearby workshop revealed a large collection of women's clothing that Cook had stolen from his many burglaries. More than 200 pairs of knickers and bras, and a large collection of dresses, blouses and skirts were found there, there was also a large number of long-haired wigs, a large collection of lingerie, perfume and female cosmetics, and while searching a workbench, police found hidden inside 87 sets of keys that he had, had copied of the doors to several women's hostels, along with two red notebooks, one containing the names and addresses of more than 180 women in Cambridge, and another detailing the movements of at least two of the women attacked. Underneath these, at the bottom of the drawer was a large envelope stuffed with newspaper articles about the hunt for the Cambridge rapist. Cook had simply picked a female at random and stalked them for a period of time, which explained how he was able to always choose a house where there was a lone female. His job as a delivery driver gave him ample opportunity to watch bedsits and to learn the movements of female students. By learning their movements, Cook had often broken into their bedsits or flats when they were out, and stolen underwear and items of personal mail. This is also how he came to know intimate details of their lives, such as their boyfriend's names. This meticulous planning made him bolder, and police were in no doubt that he would have killed a victim sooner rather than later if he hadn't been stopped. It would have just been his next thrill. Peter Samuel Cook appeared at Norwich Crown Court on the 3rd of October 1975 charged with 7 rapes and 2 woundings he pleaded guilty to all of the charges against him and received 2 automatic life sentences during his trial a psychologist told the court that Cook's transvestite urges stemmed from a chromosome deficiency and this may have been instrumental in him becoming a sex offender his defence counsel John Marriage QC told the court the sex act was secondary to him it appears that the humiliation and terrifying of the victims is more important than sexual satisfaction the judge mr justice melford stevenson who was coincidentally the same judge who had jailed the cray twins for life told cook while passing sentence in your case i am recommending that life in prison means exactly that Apart from the obvious lasting effect on all of the women that he attacked, the name Peter Samuel Cook and the case of the Cambridge Rapist is largely forgotten by the British public. By all accounts, he passed his time quietly in prison, identifying as a female named Carol, and his closest friend being a rag doll that he carried around with him. At other times, he began harping on to prison staff about being allowed to wear women's clothing, and began signing off his letters from prison as Janet. The only time Cook's name resurfaced into the public conscious was in 1995 when moves were made to have Cook released either on parole or moved to open prison conditions having served 20 years by that time. Cambridge MP Anne Campbell who was a Cambridgeshire woman who had lived in the city throughout Cook's reign of terror was quick to object to this and she opposed these moves in Parliament. She described firsthand the fear that Cambridge was held in by Cook's actions claiming that Cook was still a massive danger to the public, and because of this he remained incarcerated as a Category A prisoner. The following year, he applied for permission to receive a sex change, hoping that a new gender would increase his chances of release. This was denied, and after this, Cook seemingly accepted that he would spend the remainder of his life in prison, as he was 68 years old by then. With good reason, I think, because in 1999... Shamed and now defunct newspaper, News of the World, featured a story where some of Cook's disturbing fantasies from his prison writings were reproduced, plus the argument for and against releasing him, written by a psychologist and a psychiatrist respectively. The link to the article will be with the show notes this week. It does make for interesting reading, and although it's sensationalist, as was the style of the News of the World, to me, it just proved how dangerous Cook undoubtedly still was. Thankfully, Cook was to spend the rest of his days locked up for his crimes, for he died in Her Majesty's Prison, Winchester, on the 9th of January 2004, aged 75. He'd served nearly 30 years for his horrific crimes, and had never once expressed any remorse for them, nor offered any explanation as to why he'd committed them. A macabre postscript to the story of the Cambridge Rapist is that for many years a t-shirt depicting the chilling leather hood worn by Cook was a very popular design and was worn by many in the punk era despite the uproar and controversy of this t-shirt the one that was designed by Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood it remained a very popular seller for many years and one of them is still actually held in the Victoria and Albert Museum I find McLean and Cook to be the epitome of evil. I've voiced many times before on the show just how much I despise any form of sex crimes. And the actions of these two, years apart, they're just nothing short of despicable. Now I was unable to determine whilst researching this episode whether McLean is still serving a life sentence for his crimes, or if he even is still alive or dead. But you could only hope that either way, he's in a position that leaves him unable to attack again, couldn't you? no woman would be safe with a creature such as him at large stalking and attacking women in their own homes at night is horror enough a place where you're supposed to be safe but doing it mask makes it just that much more chilling and in the case of peter cook to actually write rapist across the hood cook absolutely loved what he was doing he was undoubtedly a very sexually disturbed guy and a constant predator driven by who knows what kind of disturbed urges His rapes increased in ferocity as they went on and he would have surely killed had he not been caught when he was. He'd stabbed one woman who nearly died and slashed another leaving a wound that needed 20 stitches. That's not taming down, is it? It's impossible to describe or even hazard a guess really at the fear that must have gripped the city during his reign of terror and it will never be known how many women had a lucky escape from him. How often did he prowl round but was thwarted because of a boyfriend staying over or his intended target changing plans at the last minute and staying over with friends? And not just students, all women were at risk, especially as Cook became more brazen in his attacks. I found a blog entry whilst researching this episode written by an author called Flora Hinton whose family lived in Cambridge at the time of Cook's reign of terror. It tells of what I consider to be a very, very close shave with Cook and a link to the article is with the show notes, but I'll reproduce here in Flora's own words, so you'll see exactly what I mean, I'm sure. My parents were delighted with their new handyman. He's really very good, my mother phoned to tell me. He's put up some lovely shelves in the study, and is painting the garden chairs. He's called Mr Cook. Cambridge in 1975 was in a state of controlled panic. A rapist was at large and single women were warned to keep their doors and windows locked at night. He was known to be short and stocky, and apparently wore black leather and a mask with the word rapist written across it. He was both sexually and verbally violent, and left his victims in a state of physical and psychological terror. The police seemed incapable of tracing him, although they made a practice of re-arresting and then releasing several likely suspects, among them Mr Cook. My mother, kind-hearted and unworldly, was outraged on his behalf, and listened with sympathy to his grievances. It's just because I'm a little fella he'd complain with wounded innocence. They've got it in for me. She'd make another cup of tea and nod encouragingly. I feel so sorry for him, she told me. He's never had much of a chance in life, and just because he has a criminal record, only burglary, when he was much younger, they keep on questioning him. He's made a new start, and they keep raking it up. His being taken in for questioning happened so frequently that my brother who was still living at home used to greet him jocularly with hello not caught you yet i see this was met with a mirthless laugh unprepossessing though he was he had acquired a wife who i was told was devoted to him the sadness was that they were childless as when my sister came over from montreal for the summer with the two young children it seemed a delightful idea for him and his wife to take them punting After all, he worked in the boatyard, what could be more suitable? A picnic was prepared, and off they went. My six-year-old nephew fell into the camp, and was heroically rescued by Mr Cook, and his popularity in my parents' household was never higher. Some weeks later, I went home for the weekend. The rapes had increased in number and brutality, but I was blithely confident that these had at least happened on dark evenings in halls of residence, and this was a Saturday in broad daylight. Nonetheless my parents warned me as they went out for the afternoon not to open the door to just anyone so when the doorbell rang I opened it very cautiously. There stood a short, stocky, shifty looking man. It must be Mr Cook and indeed it was. Thank goodness it's you I said hospitably ushering him in. I was afraid it might be the rapist. Our eyes met briefly. His expression was impassive. Well you can never be too careful. Are your parents in? On learning that I was on my own, he hesitated for a while. Then he pushed past me quite roughly, saying that he wanted to check the shelves that he'd put up last week. Halfway down the hall, he abruptly turned round and said that he'd changed his mind. I just want to know how satisfied they were with the drawer that I repaired on that military chest, he said. I've done a lovely job on it. Let me show you. It's in the top bedroom. What about the shelves you wanted to check on? No, it's the drawer, he insisted. I was beginning to feel uneasy but after all this was someone who'd saved my nephew's life. Just then the phone rang and when I returned he'd gone. Three days later my mother rang me at six in the morning. Flora! she almost squeaked. It's on the news. They've caught the rapist and it's Mr Cook. She was so shaken that although almost teetotal she agreed to have a small brandy. My brother was frankly disbelieving a mask with rapist on it, he scoffed. He surely doesn't have the imagination. But it seemed that he did. Once he was in custody, hindsight illuminated all corners and opprobrium was cast from all directions. But my mother, fair-minded as always, wrote to the highest authorities and, on the grounds that a man is innocent until proven guilty, wanted it on file that Mr Cook had been a very good worker and furthermore had saved her grandson from a watery grave. But by this time, Peter Cook was in a hospital for the criminally insane, calling himself Carol and breastfeeding a rag doll. I still keep my clothes in a drawer repaired by the Cambridge rapist, signed in chalk on the side panel. while well, he did a lovely job on it. Scary stuff, eh? Who knows how many more there were like that? There is a book available about Cook's crimes entitled The Cambridge Rapist Unmasking the Beast of Bedsitland written by an archaeology professor, Paul Barn. Now the unique angle of this book is that Paul Barn was a student in Cambridge at the time Cook was at large and he amassed a large file of clippings, journals and diary entries from his time there. He was involved in setting up the student guardian angels type protection thing that had been implemented to combat students fearing being alone during the series of rapes and many years later this file he had kept became this book now i don't know what it's like because i haven't got it or read it it's currently unavailable for purchase and what books there are available are from third-party sellers for astronomical prices really really silly money i don't mind paying for a book for research i mean the very kind patreon support that i get from some of you guys helps but trust me, these are just going for too much. I did attempt to contact Dr. Barn to maybe obtain a copy, but this proved to be unsuccessful. But I shall keep searching for it. Who knows, it may even be one of those nuggets that turns up at a car boot sale or a chaser shop when you're least expecting it. I'm sure it would be a welcome addition to my library. So the tales of Tony McLean and Peter Cook. Horrific, don't you think? As always, this episode is up for discussion on the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook discussion group right now. And do have a look at the articles within the show notes for perusal this week. Now I'm back in two weeks time now. I did opt to change my week off as the round as the logistics just worked out to bring you this episode. But I'll be beavering away in the background because I don't rest on my laurels me and I shall catch you then. So all it is for me to say that thanks very much guys for joining me this week. I'm Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you all happy and safe times and I shall speak to you soon. Take care folks and goodbye for now.